want to share with you fits in nicely with the song uh, this morning. I believe that what God wants to say to us today is that we need to be a people who stand firm in our faith. And I'm going to get there. I want to share some things from uh, our trip in, in Israel and uh, back and forth. But uh, those, those scriptures that I share with you this morning are all different scriptures where God just says to us, stand firm. And I believe that that is the word that God wants to share with us this morning. Our first uh, picture this morning is um, the walls of Jerusalem. And uh, this is one one corner of it. It is 2.8 miles around uh, the inner city of old Jerusalem with this wall all the way around it. And uh, you can see um, on that wall, there's slots down here um, all the way around so that and there's different walkways around and so we walked all the way around that wall well I didn't walk all the way around but most of the way around it and um, those were designed so that you could be up there with a bow and arrow and shoot your enemies uh, <laughs> out, out those windows I suppose you could use guns today or whatever but uh, that was their their means of protecting um, Jerusalem um, and it went all the way around the four quarters of Jerusalem, the Christian, the uh, Jewish, the Arminian, and the Muslim. And inside, there's no definite wall or division in between that, and people can freely go from one quarter to another and all of that. But you definitely know which section you're in when you're when you're in it and, and all of that. And we, we went up pretty late one night, and then they locked the gates to walk around and, and so we ended up going further than we had intended to and had to come down because it was one place that wasn't locked yet was the Muslim gate so we walked all the way through the Muslim gate to get back to our, our hotel that night. Um, the next one is the entrance to the Holocaust uh, Museum and interesting that this works out to fall on this day. Um, on the inside, I don't have any pictures of that because they were not allowed. Pictures or videos or any of that were not allowed on the inside. We spent a couple of hours, probably two and a half hours there at the Holocaust Museum. You could easily spend a, a full day um, there walking through that museum, seeing everything. Um, I, I quite honestly don't think that there was any pictures or videos that I could have taken that would have done any justice to what's inside there and, and to how you feel leaving there. Uh, the, next, the next picture is, is a stone that, that communicates some of the gravity, um, a bit of the heaviness of spirit that one feels walking through. He says, Now and forever in memory of those who rebelled in the camps and the ghettos, fought in the woods, in the underground, and with the allied forces, who braved their way to Eretz Israel, that means to the future land of Israel, and those who died sanctifying the name of God. I remember at that time Israel didn't exist yet. Israel came into being in 1948. But um, it just helps you realize and remember the horrors of evil uh, that there is in the world and the consequences of uh, following a worldview that is just simply doesn't honor God. The next picture is of uh, the entrance to the Children's Museum um, that was dedicated to the one and a half million children, Jewish children that were killed. I just want you to stop and think about that. Out of the six million, 
one and a half million were children that they just killed in the most brutal ways. Um, absolutely incredible. And this, this museum was paid for uh, by two Jewish parents uh, that live in Beverly Hills, California. Uh, their son was one of those killed in Auschwitz in 1944 uh, before the war was over. Um, you see the stone over here in the left that has the number engraved, six million. And you just stop and think about that number for a little bit. Every zero, you know, the first one representing ten and a hundred and a thousand and, and on you go down the line and just think about the incredible number. We lost six thousand people in nine one one. That is one thousandth of the number of Jews that were killed in the Holocaust. And there isn't any of us, I don't think, that probably don't know someone who was related or knew of someone that died in New York City that day. We had connections way out here in the Middle West with people in New York City. So just multiply that by a thousand people in a much smaller place like Europe. And watch six million people die and the world just let it go on for a long time. That's evil. That's a spirit of evil in our world. Um, you just can't really wrap your mind around that kind of a number. Um, we never can forget that the world is full of evil. That there are evil people in the world. That there is a spirit of evil in the world. And uh, in the midst and in facing that, you and I have to be brave um, and courageous, and we have to fight it on the front end of the battle. We can't wait till the end. Paul says this in 1 Corinthians chapter 16, verse 13. Be on your guard. Stand firm in the faith. Be men of courage. Be strong. Do everything in love. Be on your guard, stand firm in the faith. Isaiah, I've been reading through Isaiah this week, and Isaiah chapter 5, verse 20 says, Woe to those who call evil good and good evil, who put darkness for light and light for darkness, who put better, bitter for sweet and sweet for bitter. And isn't that what our what is all around us? I mean, we see this daily, you know, even in our own nation where Evil is called good, and good is called evil. Whoa. We need to be careful about that. Romans 12, verse 21, Paul writes, and he says, Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. We can't just sit around. We, we have to be proactive. We have to take a stand. We have to be involved in the fight against evil. In, around us. We can't just sit back. Uh, we have to overcome it with good. Doing good. And then here's some other verses from Ephesians chapter 5, verses 15 and 16. Paul says to us, Be very careful then how you live, not as unwise, but as wise, making the most of every opportunity because the days are evil. 
And then you know, of course, in Ephesians chapter 6, where it talks about the full armor of God. It says, put on the full armor of God so that you can take your stand against the devil's schemes. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. Amazing. There is a demonic spirit of evil in the world. And you and I need to be strong in our faith. We can't be wimpy in our faith. We can't just kind of ride the roller coaster through life. You and I have to be strong in our faith. And so I want to remind you of that. I'm going to come back to that a little bit later. One of the other things that we saw that same day was the Wailing Wall. Over here is... uh, the part that they would let you take a picture of. Um, it is the part where women and children could be at. And, uh, and that is the, really the only part of the second temple that is still in existence. Um, and, um, then if you went further over there where we couldn't take pictures, uh, there was the place where all the men were at and the wailing wall and there was a big, um, library and all of that, um, and study area where the Jewish rabbis and men would, would go in and they would have a desk that was similar to a pulpit, just a little bit lower and a little bit more curved, and they would sit at it and, and they would, they would, um, study at it, and there were, there were just lots of these around for them to study at, and, um, you would see them studying the Torah along, um, with that library on the side, they could go in and get any books they wanted to. Um, and then over here is a close-up of the Wailing Wall, and you can see scraps of paper stuffed in there where people would write out prayers and stick them in the wall. Um, one of the things that the Jewish men did that I found interesting was called the practice of davening. And so when they were at the wall or if they were in the library studying the scriptures, they didn't just stand still or sit still. They were always going like this. They looked like pigeons <laughs> going back and forth. Well, it's called the practice of um, davening. And the reason they did that was twofold. Uh, the scriptures that says, love the Lord your God with all your heart and soul and mind and strength they they took that as they needed to do something physically to demonstrate that love for God. So this is a practice they developed. And the other thing they do that for is to show their desire for the temple to be rebuilt. And so every time they come to the Wailing Wall or study there or any of that, they're, they're thinking and asking God to rebuild the temple again uh, as that day comes. The next picture is just outside the old um, walled city of Jerusalem, and it's a Roman Catholic Church of St. Peter in Galacantu. There we've got it. Um, And and this is the site. uh, That's the church. I don't have the outside picture of the church, but that's, that's the site where Peter denied Jesus three times. And this is down very deep in the church, and it's a pit, and they believe it is the pit uh, where Jesus was put into nights uh, while he was on trial. 
and over here is up the ceiling of that pit and they would have dropped him down by a rope um, and that was very common. Um, Peter and John were also would have been put in the same pit and lowered through a rope so that that was the only way out of there was through the rope. Um, and Psalm 88 verse 4, I hadn't really thought of Jesus being dropped down by a rope into a pit, but Psalm 88 verse 4 and 6 says this, I am counted among those who go down to the pit. I am like one without strength. And then Psalm 88 verse 6 prophesies about Jesus. You have put me in the lowest pit, the darkest depths. And uh, of course now we have lights and all of that down there. It was still pretty dark down there. Um, but uh, that was, I, I can't imagine how dark and gloomy that pit would have been uh, for Jesus and, and uh, the other apostles as they preached the gospel. The next picture is of the church of the Holy Sepulchre. Um, a sepulcher is a small room or tomb uh, where a dead person is laid. And so this church is was built over the place where they believe that Jesus' body was prepared uh, for burial and where they believe that uh, they believe that the tomb that Jesus was buried in is inside this church. Um, this church is 1690 years old. It was built in 326 A.D., um, so that's quite astounding in itself. It's the oldest church, um, as far as we know, anywhere around. The Persians came in and destroyed all the other churches. And the reason they didn't destroy this church is they got in and they saw all the, the tiny marble um, drawings, and on one of them was the drawings of the three wise men, and they saw themselves, they saw Persians in those pictures, and they said, we're going to save this church. And so out of all the churches in Jerusalem, this one was spared. Another time in 1200, during the time of the Crusaders and all of that, um, every church in Jerusalem was spared, or, or, or demolished again, except for this one, and that one was when uh, the, the commander that was about to destroy it had a dream the night before, and, and he was told to spare this church. And so um, there aren't any other churches as old as this church, uh, but this, this church, the Holy Sepulchre, we really do believe, has the hand of God on it because it, it covers the place uh, where Jesus was buried. Um, The church on the inside is fairly dark. There, I mean, there's windows and stuff, but it's not uh, nice and bright and all of that that um, I like. But it has beautiful mosaic on the walls. Um, many of the walls and ceilings, stately columns, and it, there's always reconstruction going on. They're always trying to preserve it and, and take care of the church, especially on the inside. Um, the next picture shows you just one, uh, not that one, uh, the one before. Um, this picture shows you um, just one little peak. Um, and, and every, there's just tiny, tiny little mosaic pieces. The amazing artwork that went into this uh, to do all of this throughout that whole building is, 
is absolutely amazing. And then the next picture you see is of the low stone where they believe that Jesus' body was prepared for burial. And um, especially Greek Orthodox, Roman Catholics uh, come and, and worship at this low stone um, every day. Um, then on the next one um, is inside. Over there to the left is where you see... Um, the entrance um, to the uh, Holy Sepulcher. And uh, we were in quite a line to get into that. And there's only about four people can get in there at a time uh, because it is that small. But um, And then over here you see another altar um, that is fairly typical of Greek Orthodox uh, and Roman Catholic in Eastern churches. Uh, just an awful lot of iconography and, and all of that that goes along with that. And that's really all I have to share from uh, Israel that, that day. But I, I believe that what God wants to say to us, especially uh, walking through the Holocaust, thinking about 911 and all of that, God wants to say to us again that it is important for you and I to stand firm in our faith. Isaiah chapter 7 and verse 9 says, if you do not stand firm in your faith, you will not stand at all. If you do not stand firm in your faith, you will not stand at all. And, and you know, the Israelites uh, in the Old Testament, they, they just, they didn't stand firm in their faith. And they just thought, you know, God's going to always take care of us and, and he's never going to destroy us. He's never going to haul us off to Babylon. He's, he's, you know, they just thought, you know, good was always going to happen. But they didn't stand strong in their faith. And I want to say to us today, it's very important that we stand strong in our faith or we won't stand at all. And, and Israel and Judah were both taken off into captivity because they didn't stand strong in their faith. Exodus chapter 14 verse 13 tells the story of the Israelites. They are they're slaves in Egypt. And Moses comes and, and he demonstrates all of these plagues. And, and the, the Jews see that. The Israelites see that. And Pharaoh sees it. And finally Pharaoh softens his heart and says, Go get out of here. I don't want any more of these plagues. And they take off and they get to the Red Sea and the Israelites look at the Red Sea and they panic and think, now what? How do we cross that? And pretty soon the Egyptians are coming up behind them because they've decided, you know, his heart is hardened again. He's going to come back and get those slaves and bring them back to Egypt. And the Egyptians worry about what's going to happen. And this is the word that Moses says to the people. Do not be afraid. Stand firm and you will see the deliverance of the Lord that the Lord will bring today. The Egyptians you see today, you will never see again. And God parted the waters and they went through and then the Egyptians came through and the waters came in all over them. But the word from Moses to the Israelites was stand firm in your faith. Proverbs 10, verse 25 says, When the storm has swept by, the wicked are gone, but the righteous stand firm forever. I want to ask you, are you one of the righteous? Are you standing firm in your faith? Jesus says, 
you will be hated by everyone because of me. But the one who stands firm to the end will be saved. He said that to his disciples. You know, they all were martyred for their faith, except for John. Every one of them. For taking a stand, for being for preaching the gospel and all of that. Jesus says later in Matthew 24, but the one who stands firm to the end will be saved. And then you go over to 1 Peter chapter 5 and verse 9. And Peter is talking there about Satan, and he's talking about how Satan wants to deceive us and pull us away. And, and, and Peter says this, resist the devil. Resist him, standing firm in the faith, because you know the family of believers throughout the world is undergoing the same kind of sufferings that you are. Sometimes it's good for us to remember, we have it fairly easy in our country, There are people all over the world suffering for their faith. There are people today being persecuted for their faith. There are people that live wondering if they will be found out as they go home from church today and whether they will be killed for their faith. We don't ever worry about that. We just get in our cars and go home. We're pretty fortunate. But there are people who are standing firm in their faith knowing that kind of stuff. Knowing that today their children might be killed along with them just for having gone to worship or any number of other things. And, and there's a lot of places like that in the world. You go to the 1040 window and it's pretty dangerous territory. You and I have it pretty easy, and it's also pretty easy for us to get soft in our faith because our life is soft. And so I just want to, I believe what God wants to say to us today is we can't be soft in our faith. We have to be strong in our faith. We have to be men and women of courage and boldness. And so... Stand firm in the faith. You know, our faith is fairly convenient, but it wasn't for God. It wasn't convenient for God at all. He sent his son to die for us. It wasn't convenient for Christ when he was being persecuted, when he was undergoing suffering, when he was lowered through the rope down into the pit, when they put the nails in his hands and his feet and then thrust him up on a cross and his body sank on those nails. It wasn't convenient for him. It wasn't convenient for Paul all the way through. It wasn't convenient for Martin Luther. It wasn't convenient for John Wesley. It wasn't convenient for Orange Scott. I'm going to talk to you about him in just a minute. I want to say to you that faith, we, we live our faith as though it's just a convenience. We can't do that. We have to stand strong and firm in our faith. Paul says, Therefore, my dear brothers and sisters, stand firm, let nothing move you. Always give yourselves fully to the work of the Lord because you know that your labor in the Lord is not in vain. Orange Scott was born in February 13th, 
1800. He was the oldest of eight children. He was in a very poor family, and by the time he was 12, he was working full-time helping to support the family. He was born in Brookfield, Vermont, and um, at the age of 20, he came to know Jesus. He was born again. And right away, he started getting involved in the church and just had a passion for Jesus. And he started into ministry as a Methodist Episcopal circuit rider, and that was before he had any transportation. He was too poor to even have a horse. And so he traveled from one church to another preaching the gospel within two years of his conversion by walking and running, just going from one church to another. He educated himself at home. He looked like he was going to be a prime prime material to be a bishop in the Methodist Episcopal Church someday. Eventually, just 12 years after, uh, two years after he became a Christian, he became ordained in the Methodist Episcopal Church. And then uh, 10 years uh, later, he became uh, district superintendent or president uh, in the Methodist Episcopal Church. He became convinced that holy hearts should result in holy lives and that holy people should bring an end to society evils like slavery and drunkenness and other kinds of things. And so in 1933, he became an abolitionist after he was already a DS. He became an abolitionist and became quickly the number one Um, leading spokesman for the cause of abolition and the freeing of the slaves in the Methodist Episcopal Church. But the Methodist Episcopal Church had a lot of slave owners in the church. And because of that, um, the the 1836 General Conference of the United Methodist Church, or Methodist Episcopal Church, um, decided that they were not going to allow abolitionists to have much of a say at that conference. And so they, they would allow people to stand, and they would allow bishops to get up and call abolitionists um, agitators and troublemakers and all kinds of things, and they, it was very well known that they were not welcome there. Bishops had decided that the Methodist Episcopal Church was going to be soft on slavery and hard on abolitionists. Orrin Scott was only 36 years of age a relatively young Christian, but very mature. And he led the abolitionist charge at that general conference and stood up against all of the bishops. And at a meeting after the general conference was over with his own bishop, the bishop told him that he could, not, he could no longer be a district president in the Methodist Episcopal Church unless he gave up all promotion of the abolitionist cause. Orange Scott refused to do that. He took a stand that was firm and he said, I I can't do that. This is evil and I, I must speak about it. And so the bishop demoted him, took him out of his, his, uh, district president's job and, and sent him to a small rural church where they'd hoped there was no hope (laughs) for him. Within a year, he added 
from that congregation of 30 people, he added another 120 people to his congregation and led them in conversions and led them in fighting the cause at abolition. Orrin Scott wrote this. He said, every man's hand has been against the Methodists. And yet we have stood firm to this day. And now we are going to compromise? <laughs> he said, no, he, is, he wasn't going to have anything with it. He called slavery not only sin, but an evil in the day. On November 8th, 1842, Orrin Scott announced that he believed it was a sin. Uh, to stay in the Methodist church. As long as they had gone from being a slave-holding church to a slave-defending church. Four other pastors joined him that day, and he helped organize the Wesleyan Methodist Church on February 1, 1843. And that's just a small part of our heritage. But it was a man that stood firm in his faith, even though it was very unpopular and cost him a lot. He dedicated the next four years of his life to building that new denomination and making it strong. But then he died early uh, of, by contracting tuberculosis and died on July 31st, 1847. We have a heritage of people who stood strong in the faith. We have a heritage right in this church of people who stood strong in the faith. The question is, are people 20 years from now going to look back and say that we were people who stood strong in the faith? Are they going to look back and say, yeah, they were good people, but only good people? God wants you and God wants me to be people that people 20 years from now can look back on and say those people stood strong in the faith. They knew their God, they had convictions, and they served God unwaveringly. That's God's desire for you. That's God's desire for Johnson Corners Wesleyan Church. 